to turn this platform over to my friend and my brother. Before I, you come on up. Sister Burrell that was down here and we prayed for her. I can just tell you, don't get her praying for you about following the leading of where God wants you to be. <laughs> because she prayed both of us up here. <laughs> Me a whole lot longer than she did Mike. <laughs> Probably 25 years she prayed for me, and she would say, Brother David, why don't you go up there, Pastor? Because I'm not a pastor. I think that's where God wants you. Well, we'll see. And here, 25, 30 years later, here I stand. And I know it was the prayers of several people, but especially of Brother and Sister Burrell. And I know it was the prayers of specifically Sister Burrell and probably Brother Burrell in there too, why this guy's here. And I am grateful for people like Sister Burrell that don't give up on you and they still love you when you disappoint them and they'll still keep praying for you and believe that God is just going to do miraculous things. And now, I am going to turn this platform over to my friend, my brother, Mike McCall. I love you, man. Sunday school classes and teachers, you may be dismissed. Well, Pastor David, thank you for this privilege and opportunity. I will, uh, I don't take it lightly. You know what it means when, uh, when a preacher takes off his watch and puts it on the podium? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. So... I promised, Pastor David, we talked yesterday afternoon for a bit, um, I said, how long, uh, you know, can I go? And he said, you know, as long as you need to. So, you know, actually he didn't say that, but I was like, well, how about I just get everybody home? I promised to have everybody home by the fourth quarter of the game that starts at 425. Fair enough? <laughs> Many years ago, you'll remember Verizon's uh, cellular advertisement with the guy walking around saying, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Actually, that came back in recent years. But how often have we thought about that concept, that can you hear me now, in the context of our relationship with God? How often have we longed to actually audibly hear from him, God, in a, in a clear fashion in the course of our prayers. Wouldn't it be nice to hear from heaven a thunder strike followed by a resounding yes or no or not quite or not yet or wait or even a seriously? How often have we even wondered if our prayers are being heard, if they're even getting beyond our water-stained ceilings? Sometimes God's silence is for a reason. Remember, there were 400 years of silence between Malachi and Jesus' birth. No prophets, no further scripture, 
for four centuries. And I think it's important that we dwell on this particular subject a bit because that 400 years of silence from God was not without a whole host and litany of issues. To be candid, the the why of this silence is rarely considered. So track with me as I walk you through what was going on at the time. That 400 years of silence refers to a time between the Old Testament and New Testament during which God did not speak to the Jewish people. 400 years of silence. It began with a warning that closed the Old Testament in Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. And the warning said, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of fathers to their children's and the hearts of children. Did I say children's? It was just children. Children's already plural. And the hearts of children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And, the, and that ended with the coming, that silence ended with the coming of John the Baptist, the Messiah's forerunner. So at the time of Malachi's warning, it was about 430 B.C., the Jews had returned to Israel from Babylonian captivity. That was a common theme with the Jews. They were constantly in captivity to somebody. But this time they returned as merchants, not shepherds. The Medo-Persian Empire still ruled Israel, and the temple had been rebuilt. Both the law and the priesthood of Aaron's line had been restored, and the Jews had given up their worship of idols. Nevertheless, Malachi's warning wasn't without a cause. The Jewish people were still mistreating their wives. They were marrying pagans. They were not tithing, and the priests were neglecting the temple and not teaching the people to honor the ways of God. And in short, the entire Jewish population was dishonoring God. In 333 B.C., Israel fell to the Greeks. Ten years later, in 323 B.C., it fell to the Egyptians. The Jews generally retreated well throughout those reigns, and they adopted the Greek language, many of the Greek customs and manners. And in Egypt, the Old Testament was actually translated into the Greek. I don't know if anybody knew this, but... uh, It was not originally in the original King James. It started in Hebrew. The translation, that that Greek translation, the Septuagint, came into widespread use and is quoted often in the New Testament. Jewish law and the priesthood remained more or less intact until Antiochus the Great of Syria captured Israel in 204 B.C. So now we've got three captivities. He and his successor, Antiochus Epiphanes, persecuted the Jews and sold the priesthood, and in 171 B.C., Epiphanes desecrated the Holy of Holies. This desecration resulted in the Maccabees uprising. And Maccabees came from the priestly line of Aaron. So it took them another six years to recapture Jerusalem and cleanse the temple. But the fighting continued between the Jews and the Syrians until the Romans came in and took control in 63 B.C., at which time Pompey walked into the Holy of Holies, once again shocking and embittering the Jews. So in 47 B.C., Caesar installed Antipater, the descendant of Esau, as a procurator of Judea. And Antipater subsequently appointed his two sons as kings over Galilee and Judea. So as the New Testament opens, and just stick with me here, as the New Testament opens, Antipater's son, Herod the Great, 
the descendant of Esau, was king, and the priesthood was politically motivated and not from the line of Aaron as it should have been. Politics also resulted in the development of two major factions. Go figure, a church split. The Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees favored the liberal attitudes and practices of the Greeks, which is, I suppose is why they were sad, you see. Dun, dun, <laughs> they, they held to only the Torah as uh, regards to religion, but like most aristocrats, they did not think that God should have any part in governing the, the nation. The Pharisees were conservative zealots who, with the help of the scribes, developed religious law to the point where the concerns and care of the people were essentially meaningless. Additionally, synagogues, new places of worship and social activity had sprouted up all over the country. Religious and civil matters were governed by the lesser and the greater Sanhedrins. The greater Sanhedrin being comprised of a chief priest and 70 other members that handed out justice, sometimes justice in the form of 39 lashes. So between the time of Malachi and the coming Messiah, several prophecies ended up being fulfilled, including the 2300 days of desecration between 171 and 165 BC. That's referenced in Daniel 8.14. However, the people did not put to good use either the fulfilled prophecies, nor the 400 years the nation was given to study Scripture and to seek God, both Psalm 43 and Psalm 44. And it didn't prepare for the coming Messiah. In fact, those years blinded and deafened the nation to the point where most Jews could not even consider the concept of a Messiah. You see, what ended up happening is that the nation of Israel, the Jews, chose, as they quite often did historically, to just do their own thing. This time, in the course of doing their own thing, God stopped talking to them. That's why it's important for us to realize that while our spiritual droughts might sometimes seem like an eternity, they're really not. They're certainly not 400 years long. But it's also a lot more personal for us. Recall also that with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we became no longer dependent on a priest to atone for our sins. He, he being Jesus, became our mediator. For each one of us, God was now able to see us through the blood-tinted lenses of Christ's death. We can confess our sins and have them forgiven in real time, not a national religious holiday where a priest would sacrifice a lamb on our collective behalf, and hence why upon Jesus' death on the cross, the Bible says the temple veil was rent or torn in two from top to bottom because it was behind that veil that the sacrifice used to take place. Now, understand something real quick about that veil. We're not talking about a shower curtain, okay? We're talking about a thick, heavy, 30 feet tall piece of fabric, some six or eight inches thick, and it was supernaturally torn apart because no longer did we require a mediator in the form of a priest. 
The sin debt, past, present, future, was paid in full that day. It's because of that that you will often hear pastors or songwriters refer to Jesus as the Lamb of God because he was the ultimate, once and for all, sacrificial lamb. Are you tracking with me? So getting back to the spirit of this message, can you hear me now? There are sometimes reasons that God is choosing to not hear our prayers. Y'all buy that? It's true. It's in the Bible. When we have unconfessed sin or there are other relational issues going on here on earth, either between us and God or, or horizontally between us and other people, like, and how did you describe them? Our enthusiastic, uh, intense fellowship, yes, like when uh, our, our intense fellowships at one time, <laughs> knock down, drag out intense, <laughs> metaphorically speaking. Um, 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands, likewise, dwell with them, referring to the wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life. Why? Oh, oh, it's right here. That your prayers may not be hindered. I didn't write it. And then in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. It's hard to know where we fall in the above scenarios when, when we get distracted by, by what we perceive to be absolute deafening silence. But we have to search our hearts, and we can also ask God to illuminate our hearts to whatever it is that's creating our prayer congestion. Pastor Dave, that's a great thing right there. You might want to remember it. Prayer congestion. It was, I, yeah, yeah it, there's no uh, copyright on it. <clears throat> you know, I remember as a, as a, a very new born-again believer in my freshman year of college how badly that I wanted to complete my first two years at USF and then finish out my bachelor's program at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. My goal was to become a pilot. Despite already being in ROTC, my parents were fighting me tooth and nail on that objective. I thought it odd that they were, especially since my dad, uncle, and grandfather had all been military. Uh, They were enlisted, but nevertheless, you know, my big plan, my grand plan, I was going to rise through the ranks. I was going to retire at 50-something as a lieutenant colonel and live happily ever after with a second career and then retire again. So I prayed, likely ineffectively, or at least immaturely, but I prayed still, just, you know, asking for a sign, any kind of sign that this isn't what I should be doing. You know, if I'd only known Brother Burrell then, he'd have just picked up his little red prayer phone uh, that, that connects to the table, the marble and gold table between uh, God and Jesus. Um, and, uh, you know, we'd have had this sorted out in no time. Um, I sort of kid. But if you guys need prayer, just like Pastor David was already talking about, the Burrells, prayer warriors, y'all. They should be in your top three go-tos. We love you guys. 
But I digress. This is what happened next. One day, in accounting class, the blackboard appeared really blurry. And yes, I am that old. It was pre-dry erase boards. I leaned over to my then-girlfriend, and I asked if she could read what the prof was writing on the board. And she could. And I cringed when I realized that I had just gotten my sign. <clears throat> I talked to a friend on the Army ROTC side. He's a, he also was a lieutenant colonel that I knew from church, actually. And the same story. Neither branch would let you be a pilot without perfect, uncorrected vision. They're like, oh, you can be a navigator. Uh, if I don't have a throttle and a yoke, I'm not interested. That was my mentality at the time, and especially if I don't have a trigger. <sighs> but I was devastated, and to this day, I really don't understand why the answer was no. It's one of those things that kind of haunts me if I think about it too long. Every time I'm in South Tampa doing an inspection and a KC-135 flies over, I'm thinking, man, I could have been pulling up behind the gas station there and getting some fuel, but it didn't happen that way. But whatever, whatever God's endgame was, his reason to decline that desire, whether it's even come to pass yet, I don't know. But what I do know is that he is God, that I am not. And I still think it would have been an amazing career. But then I think about the things that I did without praying about them. You know, Routine things, the, the, the little stuff. Stuff like, oh, getting married, having kids, buying a house, vehicles. Two lessons learned there. Take everything to God in prayer, and if I had only known then what I know now. Here's another example from the Bible. Moses wanted to see God's face. That desire was declined but he got a really reasonable and life-preserving alternative. Notice how they actually conversed in Exodus 33, starting in verse 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you and that I my, my, sorry, may find grace in your sight. And consider that this nation is your people. And God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, Please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face 
shall not be seen. Remember, there's an old hymn, he hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. So, so here's Moses, right? And we got a, got a rock wall here. And God's saying, you, you cannot see my face and live. It just can't happen. I'm not going to do it. So, but what I'll do, make you a little deal. I'm going to put you right here in this little, little cutout. And I'm going to walk by, and as I do, I'm going to put my hand over your face. And once I've passed and lowered my hand, you can see me from behind. And when Moses came down from that mountain, he glowed like nuclear Chernobyl glowing. And it went on for a while. When David, and to be clear, not Pastor David, wasn't chasing the married girl next door, what a relief, right, Ruthie? He was a man after God's own heart. Pastor David recently preached about there, wherever there is, if that's where God puts you, that you're there. And a whole lot of times we don't understand our place, our there, or even our purpose. But recall Joseph. Well, which one, you ask? Actually, actually, either of them, but in particular, Old Testament Joseph, sold by his brothers into slavery, then advancement, then a false accusation of sexual misconduct, thrown into prison, then remembered, then mega advancement, all to fulfill a singular purpose. What was that purpose? To preserve the lineage of the coming Christ. But let's not overlook New Testament Joseph also known as Jesus' bonus dad, as it were. His young fiancée ends up pregnant, and being a man of integrity, he chose not to shame her. I mean, let's face it, until Mary, and even after Mary, there was really only one way for a girl to get pregnant. And I'm not going into the details. Google it. Mary was mortified about what Joseph would think. What else could he have thought? Nevertheless, he was going to cancel the wedding. Call the print shop. Call the baker, caterer, reception venue, DJ. Call the rabbi and Dead Sea Cruise Lines. Keep the deposit. Cancel the orders. I need new carpenter tools anyway, he thought. But it took an angelic visitation to assure Joseph that everything was good. That Mary being pregnant with Jesus was God's plan. The angel told him not to be afraid to take her hand, that she was still pure. So guys, and I'm talking to the men here. Think about that whole combo for a quick minute. You go from thinking your girl did you dirty, only for an angel to show up, talk to you, drop an even bigger bombshell, hey, congrats, Joseph, you get to help raise God incarnate. So, you know, I'm cool with that. If God doesn't want to speak directly to me, I'll take a messenger from heaven, a throne room page, and an angelic runner, per se. Maybe it's an Uber Eats driver pulling up next to me at a traffic light if there's a message from God, or a little Mexican guy in a PT cruiser pulling up yesterday while my father-in-law had some stuff on a trailer pointing out the fact that something was about to fall off the trailer just as it fell off the trailer. So, I didn't tell you about that, Jen, remind me. But it doesn't work like that the, the vast majority of the time. Sometimes we just need to stop talking. Stop distracting ourselves with noise. TV, radio, social media, angry birds, idle chatter, the so-called news, and just sit in meditative quiet 
with God's word awaiting an answer that's already clearly spelled out in Scripture, or awaiting that still small voice, a voice so still, so small, that we too often drown it out with garbage and noise. Y'all still tracking? Consider this about God's Word. A lot of times the answers are already there in black and white, or sometimes red letters if your Bible has those. There's some pretty obvious ones, but I'm broke. wonder if I had to knock over a couple of liquor stores on the way home. Uh, no, that's covered. You know, I'm thinking I really want to marry that guy, but he's not a, a Christian and his Sundays are for golf and ESPN. Uh, no, that's already covered too, not to be unequally yoked. Oh, I know. My ex made me really angry with what she did. Can I take her out? I mean, as an off this planet under the guise of righteous indignation. Seriously, no. That's definitely covered already too. No buts. Thou shalt not wasn't stuttered. Pastor David outlined a lot of theirs in the sermon I mentioned. I saw a comment on the live feed that it's often difficult to know if we are in our there. And yeah, I agree, thousand percent. But that's where the Holy Spirit plays a crucial role in our walk with Christ. You should feel that check in your spirit if or when something is off. Well, what does that feel like? Well, I can't speak for any of you. What I can tell you is it's this gnawing, nagging sense of being unsettled. Usually, I already know the cause. Sometimes I have to search myself or pray that God will open my eyes to it. And I'll add this from personal experience. If you think you're saved, but you're actively engaged in a repeated pattern of sinful activity, and it's not gnawing at you, you might want to check your heart. Was it real or just a feeling sometime in the past? If you know that you've got something going on in your life that you wouldn't want to stand up here and blurt out to the congregation, and yet it isn't plaguing your spirit, that's more than kind of a problem. Conversely, if it is plaguing your spirit, then you need to confess and repent of it to God I assure you, there is nothing any of us have ever done that he cannot forgive apart from grieving the Holy Spirit, which is an entirely different sermon altogether that Pastor David can deal with. In truth, there's nothing you've done that someone else hasn't already done. Someone even in Scripture that God hasn't forgiven upon their confession and repentance. You don't need to tell the pastor. You don't need to tell the priest in the confessional booth. You don't need to go home and tell the Beatles and Mother Mary about it. Make it right with God. Accept his forgiveness. John 8, starting in verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all of the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught 
in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped. He stooped down and wrote something on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw the stone at her first. And again, he stooped down. He wrote something else on the ground. And then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one. Pause right there. What do you think he wrote on the ground? Could have been a list of that guy's sins. Could have been the name of all the guys that had been with the very woman they're making the accusation of. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. What it does tell us is that every one of them walked out, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And then Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing up in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has has no one condemned you? And she said, No, Lord, no one. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I recently heard a story about a murderer who sat in a courtroom expressionless as his crimes were recited before the court at the arraignment. And when the judge asked how he pled, he said, well, I've already forgiven myself. Mm, That's not how any of this works. You can seek forgiveness from someone whom you've sinned against, assuming you didn't kill them, I suppose, and you definitely should, but you must seek forgiveness from God to receive God's forgiveness. John 8, verse 35 through 36, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. there's no forgiving yourself. There's only rest and solace in knowing that you have been forgiven by the person or persons you transgressed. And there's rejoicing knowing that the God, that God has forgiven you, assuming you've repented and confessed of that sin. There's only one place in Scripture where God is said to speak in a still, small voice. And it was to Elijah after his dramatic victory over the prophets of Baal. Told that, if you want to look at it later, it's 1 Kings 18, 20 through 40. Told that Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, king of Israel, was seeking to kill him, Elijah ran into the wilderness and collapsed in absolute exhaustion. God sent an angel with food and water to strengthen him, told him to rest, and then sent him on to Horeb. In a cave there, Elijah voices his complaint that all of God's prophets had been killed by Jezebel and he alone had survived. God instructed him to stand on a mountain in his presence. Then the Lord sent a mighty wind which broke the rocks in pieces. Then he sent an earthquake and a fire, but his voice was in none of them. And after all of that drama, 
the Lord spoke to Elijah in a still, small voice or gentle whisper. The point of God speaking in the still, small voice was to show Elijah that the work of God need not always be accompanied by dramatic revelation or manifestations. Divine silence does not necessarily mean divine inactivity. Zechariah 4.6 tells us that God's work is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, meaning that overt displays of power are not necessary for God to work. Why? Because he is God. He is not confined to a single manner of communicating with us, his people. Elsewhere in Scripture, he is said to communicate through a whirlwind in Job 38, to announce his presence by an earthquake, Exodus 19, to speak in a voice that sounds like thunder, 1 Samuel 2, Job 37, Psalm 104, John 12. In Psalm 77, 18, his voice is compared to both thunder and a whirlwind. And in Revelation 4, we're told that lightning and thunder proceed from the throne in heaven. Nor is God limited to natural phenomena when he speaks. All through Scripture, he speaks through his prophets over and over. The common thread is all, in all of the prophets is the phrase, thus says the Lord. He speaks through the writers of Scripture. Most graciously, however, he speaks through his son, the Lord Jesus. The writer to Hebrews opens his letter with this truth. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The difference between God speaking through thunder and the whirlwind and then the still small voice can also be considered as showing us the difference between the two dispensations of law and grace. The law is a voice of terrible words and, and was given amidst a tempest of wind, thunder, and lightning attended by an earthquake. The gospel is a gentle voice of love, grace, mercy, of peace, pardon, righteousness, and most importantly, the free gift of salvation through Christ. The law breaks the rocky hearts of men in pieces. It shakes their consciences, fills their minds with a sense of God's fiery wrath and the punishment they deserve. And then the gospel speaks gently to them of the peace and pardon that's available in Christ. There's a reason that we are to put on the full armor of God daily. I know Pastor David did an entire series on this twice, actually, that I recall, maybe three times, but it bears repeating. In Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and, and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the what? Whole or full armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Now, this, this next section, it, it's interesting. In the Greek, the, the, the verb use, the, the verb tense actually changes a little bit, and we'll talk about that. Stand therefore, hear this, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate, 
breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Okay, so that verb tense, having girded, having put on, having shod. Okay, that's like getting up every morning and, and putting on the basics, right? Think, think maybe about um, a law enforcement um, officer who is also a SWAT team member. They've got their basic uniform, right? But above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So now we've changed verb tenses. So here's the rest of your gear. Take it with you, okay? You're not going to necessarily be in a SWAT team raid situation right this minute, but you want it in the back seat. So when it starts, on goes the helmet, the shield. Okay, we're not depending on our sidearm anymore. We're, we're going with the, with the carbine at this point. Okay? Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. And for me that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. It is less important how God speaks to us than what we do with what he says. God speaks most clearly to us in this day through his word, the Bible. That's why Bible study is important. You actually get to, you know, study the Bible. The more we learn it, the more ready we will be to recognize his voice when he speaks, even if metaphorically speaking, and the more likely we are to obey what we hear. So here's our big idea, our takeaway, if you will. The world is riddled with religions, but Christianity True Christianity, not the nominal, well, mm, what do I check in here? Well, I'm, I'm not something else kind of Christianity, okay? It's not about religion at all. It's about relationship. A real, true, one-on-one -on -one relationship that each one of us can have with God through his son Jesus, whom he willingly gave so that we can have eternal life in Christ. There's no magic formula. There's no smoke and mirrors or hocus-pocus, rabbit-out-of-a-hat tomfoolery. There are no required pilgrimages. So to answer the sermon type question, can you, can you hear me now? The answer is yes. Phatic, absolutely. It's simple. Whether you've never accepted this relationship with Christ is real and personal, or, or maybe you haven't given much thought about it for a really long time, this altar is open. It's often been said, Pastor David has said it, that altars alter people. There's no shame in admitting that you need a Savior. There's no shame in coming forward to quietly pray or to, to seek prayer. Or if you want to come forward to receive Jesus or renew your relationship with Him, we'll have some folks up here. Um, Rick, if you would, please. <clears throat> we'll have some folks up here to meet you, to pray with you. You won't be embarrassed in any way. 
You won't be taken to some secret room someplace. I've asked the worship team to play one of my favorite old hymns. Would you come? <laughs>